Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. I'm so happy to have you here. Now, before we get into this week's incredible interview with an amazing expert from around the world of human knowledge, I want to let you know I am back on tour this year. I just added a whole bunch of new stand-up dates on March 23rd through 25th. I'll be in Austin, Texas on May 5th and 6th. I'll be in San Francisco, California at Cobb's Comedy Club on May 11th through 13th. I'll be in San Antonio, Texas, and from June 8th through 10th, I'll be in Batavia, Illinois. For tickets, head to adamconover.net. That's adamconover.net. And watch this space. I will be announcing more tour dates very, very soon. And don't forget, if you want to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash adamconover. For just five bucks a month, you get every episode of this podcast ad-free. You can join our community Discord, and we got lots of other great goodies for you. Okay, let's get to this episode. You know, last week in our wonderful interview with the incredible Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, we talked about the human element of science, about why it's so important to help us understand science better, and why when you include the human element, it makes science better. You know, when everyone is allowed to participate in this human pursuit of understanding the universe around us that is better for humanity and science together. Well, that's also part of why understanding the history of science is so crucial. You know, again, we often think of science as being this impersonal, perfectly rational process. But in reality, if we know a thing, then someone had to figure it out, right? Some human at some point in time who is embedded in a social structure who had feelings and thoughts and, you know, needed to eat and take a shit, this person or this group of people, often a very large group of people, had to come up with the idea and not just that, but write it down and disseminate it to other people using whatever technology was available at the time. Which means that there are so many human reasons that a particular scientific innovation does or doesn't take hold. You know, maybe the person who thought of it was an asshole, or maybe they knocked a candle over and burned down all of their writings like it's simply not the case that science marches steadily forward because of the progress of the human mind no because of the incredible messiness of human life incredible scientific discoveries can be made and then forgotten like take this truly impressive artifact from the ancient greek world it's called the antikythera mechanism the antikythera mechanism i'm sorry if there's any ancient greeks around you can correct my pronunciation on twitter later but it's essentially an analog computer with gears that was used to make elaborately precise astronomical predictions, and it's from a couple of hundred years before the Common Era. And this profound scientific instrument seems so impressive because whatever genius went into making it was lost. It did not become the norm. People literally forgot how to make this artifact and what it was for, and we're still putting together what the mechanism actually does today. The point is that science is a human enterprise subject to human social forces. In other words, the forces of history. And if we don't understand that history so that we structure the social forces correctly to avoid the mistakes of the past, well, we're not going to advance science or do good science. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about the history of science and specifically the history of physics, making this a little two-part physics series if you add it to our wonderful interview with Dr. Prescott Weinstein last week. So here on the show today to discuss the ancient history of scientific discovery, we have an absolutely incredible guest. It's his second time on the show. His first time was one of my very favorite interviews that I have ever done in my life, frankly. His name is Carlo Rovelli. He's an incredibly eminent physicist, and he's the author of the new book, Anaximander and the Birth of Science. Please welcome Carlo Rovelli. Carlo, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back, Adam. It's a great pleasure. You were, our last conversation was one of my very favorite interviews we ever did on this show. You helped me understand quantum mechanics and the, the very difficult parts of physics in a way that helped me integrate it with my philosophy education, helped me see 
the universe in a new way. I probably only remember about a third of what the, of the revelations that I had back then because I'm getting a little bit older now. And uh, my, my mind isn't what it used to be, but um, it's always so much fun to talk to you. Uh, and you have a new book out already uh, called Anaximander, although my understanding is that this is a, it, it is a re-release of, of uh, some slightly older work of yours. But t- tell me about it. That's right. It's a, it's a combination of new and old. It's a, it's a new book is being uh, 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 just uh, published, uh, republished, in fact, uh, um, in, and I'm, 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 uh, it's going around. I'm, I'm expecting it's coming out with, uh, um, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with enthusiasm. But it's uh, something I wrote long ago, um, about uh, more than 10 years ago, almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I guess. And uh, uh, which uh, it came out by, it's my first book. And in my opinion, it's my best book. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, at the time, I sort of wrote for myself. And then a small, teeny um, publisher published it and printed the 25 copies or a little bit more and nobody bought it. And it was a sort of a, a cold secret thing that was going around among my friends until... <laughs> until The real you know, Ravelli heads knew about it. But, yeah, exactly. Not, yeah. Exactly. They only, only, only them. And then the, 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 my, my big publisher said, wait, wait a minute, that book, we want that book. And I said, well, that's my best book. So it's now coming out. But uh, Adam, it's also a mixture of old and new for another reason, because you mentioned Helgoland about quantum mechanics and, uh, um, and about the great scientific revolution. This is about the greatest scientific revolution. Mm. And I think if you want to understand quantum mechanics, you have to understand this, because it is about a revolution that happened 26 centuries ago. What revolution was that? I don't know what, what you're referring to. And I'm so curious to know. <laughs> the title of the book, Anaximander, it's a, it's a guy who lived um, 26 centuries ago. Uh, let me start. I, I know you're supposed to ask questions, and I'm I, I'm supposed to. Let me let me. No, ask, I want to hear this story. I feel like this is going to be okay. 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 okay but let me ask a question to you. First oh, question. please. Um, when it rains. I mean, you guys there in in California don't know that much, but you know sometimes it rains. We had a lot of rain this year, so I okay. I so you know what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, there's water that falls from the sky, right? Yes. Where does it yes. come from? It comes from uh, clouds. Is, yeah, is the child's answer, and I know a little bit more being an adult, and, and I know and that where, it's, where, how it's goes water vapor there. that can that condenses when it, yeah. I believe it cools down. Yeah. Yeah. up there, and then it and it uh, it condenses into water into liquid from a gas to a liquid and a false. Exactly, and then how it come, how it gets back up. It gets okay. It it gets it evaporates yes, in the perfect, sun, perfect. Great, and great, then it great. goes back up into the cloud. Well, wonderful. So, right answer. And now the second question is: Do you know who, who? understood all that? Who? Anaximander. <laughs> but he <laughs> lived in uh, 600 BC or so. That's correct. That's correct. That's a guy who understood where the rain came from. He wrote a book, um, all sorts of stuff in the book, and that's one of the many things that he understood. Nobody had that um, idea before. People thought that you know, um, rain is sent by a god or something like that, mm. or that there are. Um, huge amount of water in the sky that, uh, you know, a reservoir of water forever. Uh, he's the one who understood that. But that's not his main idea. I mean, he has many ideas like that, and many are right. It was, where, where, where did he live? What part of the world was he from? Um, it's a cost of what today is Turkey, mm-hmm. which was, but he was speaking Greek, so the population okay. was Greek. And this is Greece, uh, uh, the Greek, the ancient Greek civilization, a um, couple of centuries before uh, everybody else we know about, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Archimedes uh, and all that famous people and, uh, and the, uh, the artists uh, and, uh, and the comedians. Uh, um, the, the famous uh, uh, ancient Greek civilization is a bit later. So he's just mm. before that. Before and, uh, that sort of high classic. Okay, sorry, keep going. Um, the Greek world had expanded outside Greece, and there were colonies um, in, uh, in in what is now France, and what is uh, in the other side, what is now Turkey, and that was uh, one of the main colonies. It's called Miletus, uh, and uh, it was a big city, uh, commercial, uh, quite rich, um, very alive. And in co- in touch with the sort of the old kingdoms, Babylonia and uh, Egypt, uh, uh, was a central 
point of an- the ancient world. And there was a school of philosophy and, and science, I would say, that mm. started developed there, and Aximander was a main character there. And he wrote a book. We don't have the book, but we have many uh, ancient uh, people. We have the text of many ancient people who talk about him. So we know we know a little bit what he said. We, what he, we have the Amazon reviews of the book of people saying, oh, the book was good. I learned a lot. Like we have people talking about the book. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, very similar. So there was uh, uh, Amazon.Rom uh, uh, two millennia ago, <laughs> and you could check, and and people would say, oh, Aximander is a gay guy. In fact, we have one of these Amazon quotes uh, by a guy called Plinius, who's a Roman, uh, a Roman writer, sort of the best scientist uh, the, the Roman Empire had, um, who said uh, about Anaximander, this is the guy who opened the door of nature for all of us. Mm. It's, uh, the, t- the, the old title of my book is The First Scientist. So you can view Anaximander as the first scientist. Ah. But this was a time when, because you said it was also a school of philosophy, when, when science and philosophy were, were very closely knitted or maybe indistinguishable. Is that the case? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, uh, somebody consider. Anaximander is school as uh, the beginning of philosophy as well. It's, uh, mm. I would say it's the first uh, rational uh, reflection about the world and trying to make sense of the world. Uh, uh, so it's at the same time, the beginning of philosophy and the beginning of science, uh, uh, not yet differentiated. But we haven't got to his main idea yet. Yes, please. This is what I was going to ask. What what did he <laughs> do that was so significant that was first that made him so the first scientist? So the really, really extraordinary idea he had uh, and I think this is a, perhaps one of the greatest revolution in in, in in human thinking. I'm not the only one who I'm not the only one who thinks so. Um, the the philosopher Karl uh, Popper said this is most portentous ideas that humankind ever mm. had. It's the following: um, Look, um, everybody until him, and by everybody I mean everybody. I mean the, not just the Greek and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, but also the Chinese, the Indians. Uh, the people in Mexico and the people in, uh, in, in Africa, in all the civilizations, everybody has always talked about reality uh, as the world, the cosmos, in the following way. Up there is sky and down there is earth, right? Mm-hmm. The sky is above our head and uh, under our feet there is, there is the earth. And so that's the picture of the world that everybody has had until Anaximander arrived. Just him is the one who changed that. And uh, he convinced everybody, he wrote this book and convinced everybody that things are a little bit more trickier than that because the sky is not just above our head, but it's all around us. Mm. So the earth is not, uh, it's not just this thing uh, under our feet, but it's uh, uh, below it, there is the same sky than above. So the earth is like a big rock that floats in the, in the middle of the sky. He... Figure he he postulated that the Earth was a round ball at that time. That's correct. Um, wow! But wait, uh, let, let me let me let me let me say a couple of things. He didn't postulate; he understood it by oh, observation okay. and thinking. And I, I'm going to tell you how because it's pretty spectacular. And uh, he didn't really think it was a ball. He didn't know what shape it is. Um, but the the in fact it was a generation later that people understood it was a it was a sphere it was a ball, mm-hmm. uh, but that's an easy step you know the, the shape you once once you understand that is a rock that floats in the middle of nothing, um, then figure out it's a, it's spherical it's 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 a simple part a simple step in fact it only took a generation the hard part was to understand that it floats, so mm-hmm. um, Adam let's imagine this conversation. Um, we are, you know, three millennia ago, and we are two smart guys, uh, you know, looking at sunset. Yeah. And uh, uh, I say, oh, look, the sun is going down. Um, and you say, boy, uh, tomorrow is coming up, but the other side. Um, yeah. And you say, how, how the hell does it go the other side? And, you know, I say, maybe, maybe there's a tunnel. Uh, I say, no, come on, there's no tunnel. I mean, it's just a, uh, if there's a tunnel, also the moon goes down that same size and come up, and all the stars, so they cannot all just crowd up and go through the tunnel. Yeah. Uh, so I say, yeah, yeah. So they should all sort of roll around us. Yeah, yeah, they roll around us. So, so you say, maybe there's nothing 
behind the earth, beyond, be behind us, uh, be, uh, below us, right? Maybe it's just mm-hmm. space so that everything... Um, and I say, oh, come on, this is a silly idea. If there was nothing, the earth would fall, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we just give yeah. up. No, no, no. It's not possible. And Anaximander had this uh, coup de génie, like the French say, that there's a strike of genius. He said, yeah, maybe what if the earth uh, is not falling? Or maybe what is falling is to fall toward the earth, not just a common down. So uh, our side of the earth things fall down, but the other side things fall up. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Falling is relative to the earth, maybe, and up and down is relative to the earth. You know, and we're having, we are having this conversation three millennia ago, and we said, well, what, what do you mean, up and down? What do you mean that for the people down, up is down, down is up? Yeah. doesn't make any sense. Okay? Yeah, you, it's like when I, we were talking about quantum mechanics or relativity. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Same. And this guy conceives a completely new way of thinking reality, in which up and down are different in LA, in, in here in Toronto or in Sydney. There are different mm-hmm. directions. It's a magical step. So he understands that reality is far more complicated than what we, that everybody thought before. Namely, things don't fall all, all parallel in the same manner, but they fall toward the earth in different directions. And so the earth can fly in the middle of nothing <laughs> and, and the sky can be all around. Isn't it magical? That is magical. It's also the way you describe it. It sounds like such a natural conclusion to come to. Because if, yeah, you're, as as people have done ever since, you know, they had enough neurons to have the thought, watched the sun go from one side to the other and watched it come up on the other side. And even, you know, I mean, there's so many ancient civilizations that tracked the, the movement of yes. the sun and the stars. That's right. And knew that over the course of the year they changed. But even, you know, even someone who's not, you know, inventing a form of numbers or anything like that. Even even a shepherd on a hill knows that the sun yes. comes up in a different location in winter than it does in summer. Of course, of course. Et cetera. Yes. And so to me, I'm like, wait, yes, wouldn't it be a very natural conclusion that the earth would be suspended in space and that there'd be something on the other side? The way you put it, it sounds so obvious. And yet it's funny, most people would look at it and say, oh, it's just impossible. There must be exactly. some other explanation that, that they wouldn't continue th- reasoning it through exactly. is, seems very unnatural to me. He was the first person to do it, that, or at least in that tradition that we know of. No, no, it was the first person, period. Not in that tradition, really? because we there's know nobody, what, there's uh, nobody what in the Indian thought. We know what ago. the Chinese yeah. thought. We know really? what, the, what people in, in Mexico thought. We know what the African thought. And we know that all these other civilization, civilizations accepted the idea that the sky is all around us only uh, when they learned it. From mm. from the Greek step by step, so it's it's really a, uh, um, a step, and you know um, he was living uh, so it's the sixth century before before our era, uh, which seems a lot of time in the past for us. But remember that uh, uh, big civilizations are much more ancient than that, right? Egypt uh, was already a, a, a big state, civilized with big cities and the pharaoh and the big army and big uh, institutions uh, since uh, two or three thousand years. Mm-hmm. And Babylonia was very ancient. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's not that the, this is not the beginning of civilization. Uh, civilization existed since long. People were writing poems uh, and, as you say, tracking the... the, 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 the path of the stars in the sky since quite some time. And look, the Chinese, I, I'm, a, I'm a philo Chinese, which is a sort of hard thing to do with these times now and <laughs> this Chinese sentiment, but I love China. Yeah. Um, so do and, I. It's uh, an incre- incredibly uh, fascinating country. Yes, and the, and the, and the Chinese it. had a, uh, but all, with all my love for China, the Chinese had an institute of astronomy since very ancient time to, to track the, the seasons and when when is uh, to anticipate when summer is coming and so on and so forth and and establish the dates and everything, and yet the Chinese didn't do the same step that Anaximander mm. did. They remained with a picture of the universe in which the Earth was uh, resting on something something else mm-hmm. uh, for very late until um, 
until the communications with the Mediterranean civilization were strong enough that they got the full information. And they got uh, sort of Western astronomers to go there and, 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 and tell the story. And then very rapidly, the Chinese astronomers, of course, very smart, say, oh, yes, that's uh, obviously the right, um, um, the right solution. So it's, um, it's a remarkable step that humankind has done. And, he, and we know the name of the guy who has made this, uh, this step ahead. There's an Aximander. And this, this was a lasting step. People, people believed it. They didn't go, oh, you're crazy, let's kill you, or whatever. This, this actually changed the way that uh, you know, science was being done or that, or that astronomy was being done, not just in Greece, but in other places in the world. Yeah, this is very interesting. Um, he, he wrote a book about that, and the book is called um, uh, Fusis. Uh, so it's uh, on... on uh, on, on nature, which is mm-hmm. uh, where the name physics come from, um, uh, from the title of his book. Wow, and, okay. Yeah, physics come from there. Um, and uh, the, uh, there was, it was debated, of course. It's not that he immediately convinced everybody, but yeah. uh, um, about uh, 100, 150 years ago in Athens, uh, um, we know a lot of books at that time. Everybody was convinced by by this idea. So all the people who were writing and the, and the intellectuals, the philosophers, all got it uh, convinced by that, and they started piling up uh, evidence and scientific evidence for that. And in fact, uh, uh, not even three hundred, two or three hundred years later, they had measured the, the the shape, the size of the Earth. They found ways to measure the size of the Earth. Really. Yeah, this is a measurement was done in the second century uh, before our era, and pretty good. So they, these people knew the, the 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 size of the Earth with a very good uh, precision. How did this change the way people thought conceptually? I mean, it, it's you, you describe it as a revolution, and so it must have had a concept, must have been a conceptual revolution as well, right? Yes, it was, um, but it was not as a consequence of that. I think something was going on. Uh, that caused that. Because look, mm. this is the same century in which the first uh, democratic constitution of Athens was written. And uh, you see, this it was a very peculiar place where this happened, Miletus and the, the early Greek uh, uh, civilization, because uh, it was very close. Uh, Miletus is very close to the big um, empires of the past, the, the Egyptian empire, the Egyptian mm. kingdom. And uh, the Babylonian kingdom, and and uh, uh, was replaced by the Assyrian Empire. So these were big uh, civilized structures uh, with uh, very centralized, uh, where all the knowledge, uh, the ancient knowledge was was collected. So there was knowledge about the stars, about mathematics, about all sorts of things. But Greece never uh, unified, and uh, it remained very fractured. And not only that, but within the cities, the Greek cities, there was a very complicated political um, uh, structure where the kings were taken down and there were uh, uh, groups of people who were managing the city together or there were even democratic structures uh, like in Athens that was coming out. Exactly Miletus and exactly at the time where Anaximander lived, so the 6th century before our era, um, there was the first parliament because mm. uh, the different cities along the Greek, uh, the different Greek cities along the Turkey coast, uh, they made a sort of alliance together, but uh, it was not one dominating the other. They were meeting regularly and debating the political problem together and trying to come to uh, a decision together. It's called, it was called the Ionian uh, League. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was uh, completely different than the big empires because there wasn't a central power. There was no heavy, powerful uh, priest caste. Uh, you know, the, the typical structure, whether in India or in China or in, uh, in Mexico or the Incas or Babylonia or Arabia, wherever, is that uh, you have a monarchy Mm-hmm. and uh, a, uh, a a religious structure that support the monarchy with the priest and everything yes and uh, decisions are taken from the from the top right right and here in greece uh there is a much more flexible thing 
in which decisions are debated, are discussed, uh, and at the same time they're near these empires, so they can absorb them because they trade with them, and they're rich. So these are people who started thinking, and this is the big revolution, I think, they've been cultural revolution, started thinking that debating it's the best way to get to, uh, to the best solution. Yeah. And uh, this as a political side, right? let's talk rather than have a, a chief that is more powerful and tell us what to do. And it has a scientific side or a, or a philosophical side, if you want, which is uh, instead of uh, you know, believing the priest or believing what the religion tells me, let's debate this story. Let's talk about this. Yeah. And the key thing, let me get to the, what I find the most fascinating things at all, um, is that uh, Anaximander is part of a school and his master, it's also the name of his master we know is a famous name, is Thales. Uh, Thales was considered one of the uh, great wisdom, wise men uh, and uh, he has uh, some results in mathematics and all sorts of things are attributed to him. And we know some of the idea of Thales um, and clearly Anaximander follows a lot of the ideas of Thales Mm -hmm. uh, because there are some similarities in the way they think. But Anaximander has no problem in criticizing Thales. Mm. And this is the magic, because you see, uh, it's not that uh, in ancient time, before him, before that century, uh, you find great masters with uh, schools behind them, or you find strong criticism. Uh, I mean, if you read the Bible, it's, uh, it's, you, you criticize Babylonia very violently. And great masters have always been existing in all civilizations with their disciples. You know, Jesus had uh, Paul and Confucius had Mencius and so on and so forth. Yeah. But here there is something new. There is a master and a follower who criticizes the master. Follow uh -huh. the master, but criticizes. So it's a third way. And that's the beginning of science. That's the beginning of philosophy. That's the beginning of rational way of doing things. You learn, you absorb everything, and then you say, wait a minute, maybe it's not exactly like that. I can change something. So there's a critical thinking with respect to what you learn. Yeah. Man, that resonates to me so much with uh, so many debates that people are having today about, uh, you know, th there's a perpetual thing where younger people come along and they criticize the work of the older masters in every field, including science. And there's always people who go, oh, how could you? You know, you should have respect for uh, your elders or, <laughs> or whatever, or the, you know, the, great, the great people who, who gave you all these wonderful things. Um, but that really is, I think those people forget that the soul of, you know, rationality and progress and, and all of that is uh, being willing to question that received wisdom and, and the sort of uh, sacred cows. It sounded like a little bit of a cliche, but to push back against the people who who taught you, you know, I, it makes me think of all the debates about what happens on college campuses with, oh, these kids today. Da, 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 da. Well, isn't that, you know, having an argument with your teacher that, that as you described that that's the soul of uh, of, of where science began? You're completely right. And I think mm. my, my, my book is, is mostly about that, right? So mm. it's a, and it's this funny balance, right? Because you, knowledge, um, go ahead only because you criticize your master. Everything we know is because somebody uh, told his master you're wrong, okay? Yeah. If we know that the earth floats in the middle of nothing, it's because an Aximander could tell Thales you're wrong. And if you know quantum mechanics, is because Heisenberg could tell his masters you're wrong. And if we know yeah. relativity, it's because Einstein could tell Newton you're wrong. Okay? <laughs> so when the young um, criticize the old, that's great. That's what we need to go ahead. Okay? And Thales was probably writing long op-eds in the newspaper being like, these kids today, they don't want to respect their elders. But there's no respect anymore for the, for the yeah. elders. <laughs> but that's where, what happens. Where is I'll... civilization going? Right. But at the same time, you see, it's, it's a balance because uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's exactly a balance because it's not by taking everything down and starting yeah. anew that you go ahead. It's by learning, by building on what, yes. uh, what uh, and so on and so forth. You know, there's... Um, you asked at the beginning uh, what shape uh, Anaximander thought the Earth could be. Mm -hmm. He had no idea, okay? He mm -hmm. understood that it was floating in the nothing because things should go around, but he had no idea. But in one of the texts, uh, he says it's like, uh, like a disc. 
uh, a sort of little cylinder, a flat, uh, yeah. not very tall cylinder. So you say, well, why the hell? I mean, this is a completely absurd uh, shape. Where it come from? But then you look at Thales, and Thales had an idea. Thales didn't know that uh, the sky, it's, it's all around us. So he was still thinking that the Earth should uh, uh, lie on something. But he thought that maybe since there is ocean all around, maybe the Earth is like a big island that floats over ocean, right? That was Thales' idea. And if it is something floating over ocean, obviously it has to be like a disc. Mm -hmm. So you see how beautiful it is here. Thales comes with a strange idea that uh, there's water all over, so maybe the Earth is just over an immense ocean. Okay, after all, wherever you walk, you find ocean. LA, you walk... Uh, 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 west, you find ocean. Where I am, you walk east, you find ocean. Um, and then Alexander come in and says, oh, yeah, the Earth can be just one big thing, but why do we need the ocean? Yeah. So we take away the ocean. <laughs> it's no role. <laughs> okay? And so you see how knowledge comes from building and changing. Yes. And, and, and every time you, you do it better. You know, then uh, a century later, somebody says, yeah, yeah, of course, it should be like that, but Cannot be a disc. Come on, does make sense. All directions are the same, so it should be spherical. Yeah. Yes, and then and then you find arguments. Yeah, it's spherical. Aristotle, look at the eclipses, uh, the the lunar eclipses when the moon uh, get covered by the shade of the Earth, right? Yes. And uh, if you look carefully, you see that the shade of the Earth is round. Mm. So which means that the Earth is round because yeah. something must be round to, to, to have a round shape. Again, this seems very obvious to me it's now obvious. when you say it now. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, yeah, there's so many things that, you know, after you get it, you say, yeah, of course, it should be like that. But civilization, humankind, took centuries, millennia to figure these things out. <laughs> well, we have to take a really quick break. This is so fascinating. We'll be right back with more Carlo Rovelli. Okay, we're back with Carlo Rovelli. Why do you feel if Anaximander was, you know, sort of the first scientist, why do we not know him as such today? You know, there's plenty of firsts who people, uh, I, I, I don't know, Hippocrates, right? Is, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, I could name the first doctor, or at least who in classical culture would be considered the first doctor in, in some traditions. So why is Anaximander not more famous? Yeah, it's a very good question, and there's a reason, there's a reason I wrote this book. Um, I started uh, uh, teaching uh, history of science because I was fascinated by history of science and went back, back, and back. And uh, uh, when I stumbled upon uh, uh, Anaximander and studying Anaximander, I was astonished because uh, once you really study what he has done and his role, and especially his legacy, it's just immense. Uh, so why don't we know more about him? And I think there are, the reason is subtle and, and, and important. Uh, um, and it's the following. Let, let, me, let me separate in two parts. In antiquity, uh, so uh, at his time or at later times, and during this classic Greek civilization or the Roman civilization, people knew about him. Everybody knew about him. And he was a sort of a champion of a scientific and naturalistic understanding of, of, of the world. But at the time, science was not powerful like in modern times. So, um, for instance, uh, you read comments about him, uh, like, you know, an Alexander says that the rain that uh, comes from the sky, uh, it's, it's, it's water that has evaporated from the sea. But... But they say it, Anaximander says that. Not Anaximander has understood that because people were not sure. Mm -hmm. People, everything was still debated. Now, in modern time, it should be it should be obvious that that idea was correct and he was on the right track and his uh, full cultural approach was so powerful and it was uh, the right uh, legacy that developed in modern philosophy, modern science. But, and this is the key answer, today. The people who do science know nothing about history. And the people who do history know nothing about science. Mm -hmm. So it's very remarkable because when I read, uh, I, I read all there is about Anaximander, all the books, there is not much, as you say, because it's not like Plato or Aristotle so famous. Um, and, and the people who write about him, uh, and I don't hold that against those writers, but they're completely ignorant of science, of physics. 
So they just don't get that uh, this is a scientist and this is a major step ahead in, 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 in the building of science. And vice versa, the scientists, most scientists today, just think about technically their problem, okay? Yeah. How you split an atom and uh, what is the, 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 the chemistry of the sun. Uh, they don't look back. So it's really the separation of culture into, into different uh, domains which don't talk to one another, which has yeah. blocked understanding uh, the relevance in, in modern times, the relevance of, um, uh, of Anaximander. But perhaps it's changing a little bit. It's not me. Other people have been recently writing. Uh, you, you can find in, in, in some books people saying this is a, a, a genius like Newton mm-hmm. at the level of Newton or... Uh, but this is, is marginal. But I think it's going to come because the separation between the humanities and science uh, uh, is diminishing. There's more beginning of talking yeah. to one another uh, nowadays. Your, your work certainly d- diminishes that that distance. Uh, that's one of the reasons I love your writing. and I love talking to you because you're able to synthesize the two. Yeah, I believe a lot that uh, a scientist should uh, should have a understanding of, of philosophy, of the, of, of uh, and, and and vice versa. I think that humanities is, shouldn't not ignore science because of the understanding the complexity of reality, you need everything somehow. Yes. Yeah. And I, I also want. I also wonder though if the reason that uh, he was not, uh, uh, you know, considered the first scientist by so many people is we so often think of the birth of science as being in the 18th century or the 17th century. You know, Newton and and those figures and. Uh, you know, the the gentleman scientists of England uh, in that period um, and, you know, that being the birth of the scientific method. A lot of times when I hear about, uh, you know, ancient Greek scientists, for instance, I read a wonderful book called The Swerve a few years ago about um, uh, the... Democritus. Yes, the the rediscovery of of Democritus' work. uh, Via Lucretius. Yes, thank you, uh, through Lucretius. And... It, it you know it's all about how a lot of it is his work prefigured the the atom that he sort of yeah. you know in these sort of poems you know uh, figured out what the atom would be in this very prescient way but it's not as though people then said okay there's something called an atom and then for the next thousand years you know did that we, we had to rediscover it many years later or it was a it was a foreshadowing perhaps and then so that's when you know how we often think of that period of science being, but was that not the case with the next Amanda? Because you do make it sound that his, his discoveries were lasting and that, and that it was, you know, it did move the progress of science forward, even though it was centuries before <clears throat> when we think of the beginning of science as being. Yeah, look, um, uh, yes, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a complex story. First of all, um, I, when, when I first published this book, the title was The First Scientist. But uh, of course, uh, you know the first scientist is a, it's it's a notion that can be turned in, in all the way you want because uh, you know it's like you know who is the first American? Well, depending how how you how you what you mean by American. Um, and if you more, more specifically, if you think what is modern science, um, it's something in evolution, which has learned new tools through the centuries and is still changing. So there are some aspects of modern science which are the same as uh, uh, something that was done 2,000 years ago and some aspects which are different. Um, so, for instance, uh, Anaximander was not using mathematics in his book, mm-hmm. okay? And nowadays, mathematics is a key tool in science. Mathematics came later, but careful. It didn't come with Newton and, or Galileo. It, it came um, in ancient time with uh, um, astronomy, the, the astronomy of Ptolemy was very, very good science. It was ma- very mathematical and very based on observations. Mm. It was very good science. You can take the book of, of Ptolemy today, which was read it 2,000 years ago, and do a calculation and compute where is Venus in the sky now, and it works. Wow. So it's very predictive, very, very powerful. Um, but then steps were added. And in the beginning of the modern times, with Galileo mostly, um, and, and, and then with uh, Kepler and Newton and Huygens and uh, um, the idea of making experiments, so uh, not just observing nature, but doing something in a laboratory to interrogate nature, uh, this did not exist in, in, in ancient times. And this is a powerful, powerful tool 
for understanding better. Or instrument, tool like a, a telescope, a microscope. This mm. came in modern times. So depending on what you mean by science, if you mean the full package, okay, with uh, experiments, mathematics, and blah, 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 yes, of course, it's, it's recent. But if you, if you mean understanding nature rationally with observations, uh, um, then it's more ancient. And I think the key of science is neither mathematics nor experiments. The key is what we said before, in, in the previous section. <laughs> Namely, the key is uh, you have a view of the world and uh, you're smart enough to understand that there's a better view of the world. Yeah. Right? This is what the, the strength, the mar- marvelous strength of science is. To, to revolutionize your concept. Okay? Think about Copernicus. Before Copernicus, Copernicus already knew that the, the, the Earth, the, he had totally absorbed the Anaximander revolution, right? The, mm-hmm. For Copernicus, the Earth is a, is, is a, it, it, it's, um, and not for Copernicus, for, for Ptolemy, for all through the Middle Ages, the Earth is a sphere and there's all the sky around. Yeah. So the, the, le- the lesson of an, uh, Anaximander has been completely absorbed. But uh, up to Copernicus, the center was a, the Earth was the center of the universe. So here comes Copernicus and tells you, Adam, so far you have thought about the world as, you know, celestial things and terrestrial things. That's all wrong. You have to think in terms of the sun and then the Earth, which is the same thing as the Venus and Mars, which is very strange. I mean, Venus and Mars are little dots in the sky. The Earth is mountain, people, birds, you know. Why do you want to put in the same category with dots in the sky. I mean, yeah. dots in the sky goes the same category as the moon. No, 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 no. That's wrong. Uh, change your categorization entirely, okay? So they're all... Spl- and then there's another category, which is the moon, just by itself. I mean, you say, Copernicus, you're stupid. This makes no sense. No, he's right. <laughs> he's right, okay? It took yeah. a century for convincing everybody, but he's right. So this changing conceptual structure, changing the way you cata- you make your basic way of understanding the world, this is the best of science. Yeah. The, to, but you have to leave open that chance that, well, what I think I understand now is perhaps wrong. Um, yeah. And that because there are things I don't understand, and so therefore my model I've created might be incorrect. You Like that, that space for doubt is the soul of it. Yeah. And this means, uh, exactly. And this means living in uncertainty and accepting uncertainty. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, it means understanding, and this is, I think, the, the core of the story, that uh, knowledge is not to be certain. Yeah. Knowledge is not about certainty. Knowledge is about, you know, a, a better view, a better understanding, a better, uh, more reliable uh, ways of expecting what happened tomorrow. But you're never sure 100% about anything, even the most you know, basic thing. I mean, the sky is over our head. It's not below our feet. That's a basic thing. I mean, how can you question this? But it's wrong. Yeah. And in Einstein question thing, you know, uh, clocks go at the same speed wherever you are. No, that's wrong. Um, quantum <laughs> mechanics, like last conversation, yeah. questions, the, you know, reality of particles. Uh, it seems obvious that the particle is a particle. You cannot spread out less weight. It's wrong. So um, we should be open to, to learn better, we should be accepting the fact that uh, nothing that we know, we know with certainty. Yeah. But that does not mean that everything is equal to everything. Because, yeah. uh, you know, uh, when you, if I come to California, I, I come to LA and ask for directions, uh, I don't have certainty, but still, some directions <laughs> are better than others. <laughs> right. <laughs> So knowledge is knowledge, and you can compare knowledge and uh, and get it better, even if you always leave a door open. Maybe I, I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of uh, when people make the mistake of using science as a bludgeon to sort of kill off a new idea. You, you hear that sometimes where people say, uh, someone will propose something new, and then in the backlash, others will say, well, that's not science. Science doesn't say that. It was like, well... If it's that new, then it's something that needs to be studied. You know, it's yes. not something that because we can we can throw out prematurely, 
um, something that is a you know threatens or threatens to alter our current conception just because it's not currently comprehended in science doesn't make it false. It means it's an object for study. Uh, yes, that, that doubt is important. Yes, doubt is important, and once again, uh, the difficulty is the balance, right? That's a, that's the mm. difficulty, namely. The thing we know, we know reliably, and yet we should be uh, open to consider alternatives, which yeah. doesn't mean that all alternatives are good. Yeah. Most alternatives are bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, I receive, <laughs> since I publish books for the large public, people write to me with scientific ideas. I receive yes. three great scientific ideas per week. <laughs> and... Uh, they're all bad. Oh, maybe there is one who's good and I don't recognize it. It's also possible, you know, yeah. but, you know, most are really very bad. <laughs> yes. I've seen some of these. I receive this sometimes, too, because sometimes people find my email address. And my sister is a science journalist and she receives these all the time of people who write and say, I figured out the a new law of the universe and, and I have all the <laughs> equations and I can show you. And you feel sort of bad because you look at it and you go, well... I, I don't think I they, it could be right, but I don't have time to read every single one of these. And, you know, the way this person has written it, it, it seems kind of kooky. So, you know, I, I don't uh, have time to read it. But you do feel bad because like, well, somebody they really feel certain that they have figured something out and uh, you want to be able to be open minded. But the volume is too high. That's been my experience sometimes. With That's that right. That's right. You feel sorry. You feel sorry for the people. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, we're, we're pretty confident that most of these things are very bad <laughs> and useless. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might be, we may always be missing something, some idea, but um, at least in my experience, the more a person is certain about some new idea, the less credible is this idea. Ah, that's if the, you, and, these, if, and, and the crackpots who write in are usually very certain about their idea. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, if you read, if you read what the real geniuses wrote, um, I mean, that, uh, Faraday, when he discovered that there's electric and magnetic field is one of the key moments in modern science because fields mm. is just more, all modern physics. Yeah. You read his books and he says... Uh, well, I think that these things are real, but I write this with hesitation. The hesitation mm. is just beautiful. And and Einstein, in the paper, um, the paper got him his Nobel Prize, uh, uh, in which he, he he understood the photon that light is made by little particles which are photons. Uh, in the abstract, he says it seems to me that this phenomena might suggest that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so on. Darwin, Darwin, his book, uh, uh, in his notebook, when he comes about this idea of evolution, there is a beautiful picture um, of the of the species branches, so the tree of life that, uh, and it's the key moment in which is uh, starts writing. And and then it's written, I think. Yeah. Not I'm sure. I've discovered. I'm certain. I found. No, no, no. All these people say, hmm. This, maybe this works, right? Yeah. And of course, when you have a new idea, you're not sure. You cannot be sure. You're trying. Yeah. And it's frightening, I'm sure, to have that idea. I mean, electrical magnetic fields are, that's a spooky thing to discover. That's a very strange idea. If you, if you hadn't conceived of them before, the fact that there would be, you know, fields in, in space generated that way, or, or evolution is such a famously disorienting idea you know yeah. i i will sometimes just lie around and just think about how strange evolution is that that you know endless forms most beautiful come from just this simple process repeated over and over again um yeah uh, you go out you go out in the field you sit down on a you know in the grass and there's a butterfly going on and then you think what the mother of that butterfly and the mother of the mother the mother my mother my mother my mother is the same guy the same yeah. woman we're, yeah. we're we're actually cousin. We really are cousin. We come from the same, from a common ancestor. Isn't yeah. it fantastic? Yeah. When you propose it, you would you would say, "I'm not sure about this because it's kind of weird." <laughs> <laughs> but we have to take another really quick break. We'll be right back to finish up with Carlo okay. Valley.
Okay, we're back. Uh, Carlo, uh, I've been loving this conversation. I I'm curious, though, you said you started teaching history of science, yeah. and you started studying it despite not being, I assume, originally trained as a historian. Most scientists don't do history of science. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about what do you think the value is for present... I mean, look, obviously it's very interesting to learn about Anaximander. It's interesting for me as someone who... Um, my feet are a little bit more in the humanities, I would say, than in the harder sciences. So mm -hmm. I, I enjoy learning about it. But, you know, for someone who's just working on neutrino detectors or whatever, right, <laughs> you know, in, a, in some big laboratory in France, um, what, what do they have to gain from, from studying the, the history of science? A lot of fun. Mm. <laughs> it's just, it, I mean, that's good enough. That's good enough for reason. No, look, um, yeah, no, I get, I guess it's two different answers. First of all, um, science is a collective enterprise and like almost, and like most collective enterprise, everybody does his part, right? Yeah. So somebody is very good in doing calculations. Somebody is good in building machines. Somebody is very, somebody comes out with ideas. Somebody is very critical and tests everybody else's idea and so on. So um, not everybody needs to do everything. So there are fantastically good scientists who are very, very good in solving the, the, the Einstein equations and super mathematically technical who just only know that and just totally mm -hmm. focus on that. And that's very good. I mean, we need also people like that. But for the, for the large enterprise of science to go ahead, that's not sufficient. You need people, I believe, that think large, think like Faraday and Darwin and Einstein who are thinking... And those people always had a vast culture and uh, a mind which was filled with, uh, you know, what this, our civilization has produced best, including philosophy and including literature and, uh, and different ways of thinking and possibly knowledge of other cultures. And uh, uh, that's needed uh, to, go, to, go, to go ahead. But the other half of the story, in my opinion, is that, you know, it goes... In, it goes in both ways. I mean, there, there, there are people who like to say, oh, I never understood mathematics. I, this, my mind is completely away from that. I have nothing to do with science, nothing scientific or mathematic. I'm sorry for them because it's like saying, oh, I never understood music. I don't care. I'm sorry for you. I mean, why do you want to yeah. miss the pleasure of music? It's just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm not a musician. I'm not capable of, of you know, writing, uh, reading the music or maybe just one note at a time in half an hour, I, I reconstruct a little motive. Um, but music, it's part of my life. I enjoy. And I think in the same sense, everybody can enjoy history and uh, philosophy and the greatest idea in science. It's one package. It's what we've learned about the world. Yeah. It's, I love that, that, that science should be something that we can appreciate like music. And that's one of the reasons I love talking to you is, is because you help give me that ability. It's actually a compliment I also played, paid to a guest that we had on a few weeks ago named Chanda uh, Prescott-Weinstein, who's a physicist. Um, and something that she said to me in that conversation was about how it's unfortunate that more physicists don't have the opportunity to think about those big questions that or or to integrate with the humanities that you know you spend so much time focused on you know what you get the grant for is to do the math and to design the neutrino de detectors and to do the technical uh paper with the graphs and make the big publication um but you know the sort of thing that frankly you do in your books about writing about what is what does quantum mechanics mean to us right or or how does this interact with the history of of science, uh, it kind of seems like nobody's paying for that work to be done, um, and that you know you're in the very lucky position to be able to do it because of your your long history and eminence. But um, because I'm older, because I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> I said eminence. It's a different word, but yeah. Well, but that's what you meant. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, do you think that's unfortunate? I mean, should should yeah. thirty year old scientists be able to you know do the do the humanities inflected? philosophical, what does this mean to us part? Would we get more out of science if they did? I think it would be better. Um, not if everybody was forced to do that, but if mm -hmm. more people did that and if people were allowed to do that. Uh, yeah. Look, I my interest in in, in philosophy and history, uh, it's, it's always been there. I've been started writing in my old age because before I had so many other things to do. Um, 
but the, the interest has always been there since uh, since the beginning. In fact, when I graduated in 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 in, um, in physics, uh, I enrolled in philosophy uh, shortly after. Mm. Uh, but then I could not finish because the pressure on 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 going ahead with physics was was too strong. Uh, but the interest was there, and I think it would uh, uh, it would be useful for science. You know, there's a lot of science being done today. A lot of people paid for doing science. Of course, science is going ahead, um, but I think if there was more culture in the sense of uh, uh, large perspective, clear perspective, wider perspective, uh, uh, the, the entire scientific um, institution would be more effective. We waste a lot of time because I think um, many people don't reflect enough. Uh, do we really need what I'm doing now? I mean, of course, I mean, if you, if you build a neutrino in a big experiment, a neutrino detector in a uh, big experiment somewhere, it's, you know, it's, it's a big reflection there. But there's a lot of papers which are written, which we could do without. <laughs> a lot of the science being done, you feel like we, we maybe don't need. Yeah, and instead, we could spend our time what, integrating with the humanities, thinking a little bit more soulfully about what science means. Yeah, think what we really need. I mean, think what are really open questions, right? I mean, uh, before I think the people before before starting a scientific project should think: Is it really needed? Is it this is really serious to have a chance to go somewhere? Uh, it's part of what we have a chance to. Too much science is done. Oh, let's do that. Let's. Ask money yeah. for doing that. Uh, just too much focused. I imagine I that step back, it will be useful. I imagine that you know when I I think a lot about in my own work, which is comedy. You know, about when I get to feel like I do the real work. You know, when I when I feel like I'm doing some comedy that my 14 year old self would have been proud of. That you know, this is why I got into it in the first place because I want to make people laugh. I want to express my point of view, etc. And I try to make sure that people around me have the same opportunity. You know, when when I'm working with a director of photography, I want to make sure that he he gets he or she gets to. Um, you know, express their uh, their love of painting with light and making a beautiful image. You know, and I imagine for a but scientist, if I might interrupt you, please, Adam, please. you're a champion of that, right? Because you do comedy, <laughs> you make people yes. laugh, but you make people think, and you collect serious ideas. It's a it's Thank a you. it's it's an equilibrium. It's a, it's a, it you is. Don't, you don't just you know say funny jokes, stupid, and 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 that's it's true. it. Is this richness? And you think about the photography, you think is that is this complexity that makes the value of what you do and makes it so valuable? Yeah, I I really appreciate you saying so. That's that's such a high compliment. Um, the 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 point I was getting to was that I feel like for a scientist, you know, I I was always moved by the. Uh, original project of science in the human heart, which is to look at the world and say, I have a question. I'm confused about this. You know, I was fascinated when I was in college with with the problem of consciousness, you know, philosophically and psychologically. And, and how do you connect the, the physical meat of the brain to the experience of consciousness? And that that question really powered me. And I'm sure it powers a lot of other people. And I feel like there's probably a lot of people who got into science with that question, but then whatever they're working on now, say they're working on, on you know, they're in neuroscience, and they're, they might be trying to answer questions that don't get them back to that essential curiosity, you know? The, so it's not just do, do we need the answer to this question, is does answering this question, is this a question I really have? Is this something that we really don't know the answer to that I, that I desire to know? I, I wonder if that's a... A roadmap uh, to uh, you know a more uh, a more holistic and and fulfilling form of science. I think it is, uh, uh, and I even think that it is a, a good career advice. Mm. At least uh, you know one can never generalize too much uh, one one's experience. But my experience was that um, you know it's hard to find a position in the academy today. There's a lot of competition. But when I was young, also was 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 hard. In fact, it seemed even harder. Um, and I made some choices and the choice was not to, uh, to follow what people were doing at the time, not to specialize too much, not to just tell me, not just to do what my advisor was saying, oh, there's this, I need this technical thing, please do it to me. But to, to try to think, to see, to look what were the serious open problems. And it paid very well for me. I mean, it's, mm. uh, I found myself working on the, uh, 
on, on the project that 10 years later everybody was working on. Mm. Which is not because I was particularly f- farsighted, but because I stopped and, and, and thought, wait a minute, um, every, everybody at the time was doing something technical called anomalies in, mm. in physics, in theoretical physics. And so why should I do that? This is a technical thing that is, what is a, what is a deep reason for doing that? Yeah. Look, there's a much more interesting problem here, which is quantum gravity. This is serious. This is big. Maybe we have a way of doing that. I, I went mm. for that. And uh, it paid off. As you say, years later, I am old and I, <laughs> I can't talk about that. <laughs> I said eminent, but but sure. Well, we can say old. Um, and, and that does seem, I don't know, I think there's a connection to when you talk about Anaximander or Darwin, who was such a you know beautiful, soulful writer and, and uh, thinker. Uh, of of connecting that to that older tradition of just just somebody sitting on a hill going why the fuck does the sun come up that side and and <laughs> go down that side and then the next day it happens again um, like you know there's there's uh, by necessity science is more technical and more detailed now because we know more and and the mm-hmm. gaps to fill in are smaller but it can still be powered by that same thing and we can still have continuity with people like Anaximander right. Yes, I think so. And in fact, uh, um, the sort of the secret reason for which I I was so fascinated by Anaximander and 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 uh, when I figured out exactly uh, me as a scientist, I figured out exactly what uh, what was the step he did, um, this deep uh, rethinking of what it means to be up and down, right? Because that's that's the core thing. Mm. Up and down have a different meaning, sort of before Anaximander and after Anaximander. Yes. Before Anaximander is just a common up and down for, 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 for everybody. And after Anaximander is an, is an up and down relative to where you are in the earth. Yes. I, you know, I, I, I work in quantum gravity, the problem of combining quantum mechanics with, uh, with Einstein um, uh, relativity. And that requires changing what we mean by space, what we mean by time, because we have to understand what is quantum space, quantum time. So it's exactly doing the kind of steps that Anaximander did. So that's why I think looking back at history is interesting. I mean, this kind of um, rethinking, reorganizing the, the conceptual structure, um, it's what he did, what Newton did, what, what Galileo did, what, what Darwin or Faraday did. And that's the kind of things that uh, we have to do in deep problems like consciousness that you, men, you, 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 you mentioned, or quantum gravity, the things we don't yet understand well. We are confused. We have hints, pieces, and... Uh, but we're still confused because probably because we have the wrong concept of structure, right? We, we think yeah. like, uh, you know, all cosmos is divided in two, the terrestrial and the celestial, and then you never figure out the solar system this way. You have to stop, <laughs> jump out of that. It actually reminds me very much of the conversations around consciousness, which are still around, you know, dualism versus, exactly. you know, a, a materialism, and, and it often feels like our conceptual structure is what's in the way. And there's many philosophers and cognitive psychologists who have argued that actually we, we need a conceptual revolution, but there's argument on that point. It's, it's recent work in the field. Um, do you feel that there's other conceptual revolutions in the future for us scientifically as great as the one that Anaximander that, you know, changing the meaning of, of up and down, that's huge. I would love to live through a conceptual revolution as large <laughs> as that. Do you think, do you think we're due for one? Yes, I think we are due for two, and we oh. mentioned both of them. One is consciousness, mm. um, as you said. I mean, we don't have clear ideas, but as you said, there are hints and bits, and there is a way. There should be a way of jumping out of this uh, a bit silly alternative between dualism and uh, and uh, you know naive materialism or naive idealism, which uh, both seems mm-hmm. insufficient. Yeah, that's one. So, I, but I'm pretty confident that we're gonna come out of that, right? I mean, says, uh, think, uh, uh, you know, I'm old. I remember the discussion about life. Mm. Is life uh, something totally different than non-animated uh, mm-hmm. nature? Uh, it seemed uh, impossible to fill the gap between biology and, uh, and physics um, mm. 30 years ago. Really? Uh, nowadays, nobody feels that this is a... a, a a serious problem. I mean, there are all sorts of things we don't yet understand about the biochemistry of life and how it started. And the, but it seems that you know it's just details. We 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 got we got what is, we got most of what is life, 
Yeah. It's not a, it's not perceived as a, as a, as a fundamental problem like consciousness anymore. Yeah. So I think that something like that will will happen with consciousness of that, but it's not happening yet. That's one. And the other one is quantum gravity. Mm. You know, quantum space and quantum time uh, require us rethinking what is time, what is the difference between past and future, and so on and so forth. And um, also, this I think is coming. It's not uh, it's not too far. Uh, but it needs a lot of discussions and it needs, you know, an Eximanders, plural. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and this makes me want to go back and re-listen to our previous conversation because I felt that you gave me a hint of that conceptual revolution in how I think about, you know, quantum phenomena versus, you know, my own my own problems of consciousness. And we yeah. we touched on how those problems are linked. And you also touch on those in your in your wonderful book, which I uh, I now want to reread <laughs> on, <laughs> uh, on Helgoland. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm so excited to read this book as well, uh, since you do describe it as your best. Um, and I want to remind folks they can pick it up uh, at our special bookshop at factuallypod factuallypod.com slash books. Um, and is there is there anywhere else that uh, you'd you'd like to encourage people to pick it up, Carlo, or anywhere that they can follow your work? Um, no, and I think this book is particularly you know it's it's my first book and the book in which I put all my thinking and my soul about what mm. science is. Uh, and uh, uh, and as we started this conversation, uh, it's connect the past and the future so much, right? Because it's a, yes. it's the same revolution in Aximander and in uh, um, and in 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 in, uh, in modern science. That's what I'm talking about. Wow. Well, I, I it's always a delight talking to you. It always expands my you know, the, my, my understanding of the world and, and my place in it and, and what, what a marvelous thing it is to be a, a reasoning being that's trying to figure things out in, in this mess of stuff that we live in. So, so thank you so much. And I hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you very much. Anna. That was a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you once again to Carlo Rovelli for coming on the show. If you want to pick up his book, you can get it at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Kyle McGraw, and as always, everyone who supports this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. This month so far, we have 12 new subscribers at that level. Thank you to Pat, Hayden Matthews, Eric Zeger, Jen Hoffman, Smzngul, a little bit of an unpronounceable name there, Rick Statton, Blake Kolb, Robert Irish, James Lynch, Chris Parker, Millennial Glacier, and Opal. If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash adamconover. That's patreon.com slash adamconover. And hey, if you want to see me live, head to adamconover.net for all my tour dates. Thank you so much for listening. I love you, and we'll see you next week on Factual. A podcast network.